Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. One of the things that I've come to very much love about our little town are the Christmas time festivities. The city really does pull out all the stops, and it is a beautiful and amazing time, and we are fortunate to call such a place home. Last night, as I stood at the courthouse square with a handful of friends and probably several thousand others in the drizzling rain, as a man read the same passage of the gospel account of St. Luke, which we read this morning, and the intertwined with singing from the local children of classic, beautiful Christmas carols. I thought of how that moment stood in stark contrast with two others from this past week. The first was some Christmas movie that I had put on in the background while I was cleaning. To be honest, I don't think I knew it was a Christmas movie going into it, but it was. But I remember thinking as I was watching it, or at least hearing it happen in the background, about how the movie had nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with what we will celebrate in a few short weeks. The other event was more shocking and directly related to this and more interesting if you're interested in cultural movements. This past week, we had a class guest lecturer in one of our classes who works with children at a camp. He was discussing the generation which some call Generation Z, those young people who are under about the age of 20. It seems that at least some consider them to be the first truly post-Christian generation. That does not mean that there aren't any Christians in that generation, but it means that the majority of them have never been exposed to any genuine Christian teaching. One of the litmus tests that the lecturer used, who was about my age, was given the fact that when he grew up and when I grew up, we would all watch that great penis classic, the Christmas special, in which Linus gets up and reads the same passage which was read last night and again this morning, and reminds everyone what Christmas is truly all about. In this speech, Linus wraps up with this important point. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with angels a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace goodwill towards men. And then Linus walks back to his friend and says, that is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. (laughs) The new secular Christmas entertainment now rarely has anything to do with Christ or any religious expression whatsoever. And the exposure to the gospel is limited in everyday life. However, I do not wish for us to grow despondent. Our reaction could be indignation or sorrow, or we could have hope. 
I was talking to a friend about this later on, and we agreed that one of two things may very well happen. God may kindle in the hearts of the people a spiritual awakening, which will be beautiful, and we will get to partake in and see. Or Jesus may very well return, which will be beautiful as well, and we will finally be free from our sins, and, and no more sorrow will exist. But in now, but for the time being, let us pray for a spiritual awakening. Prayer that we would love well even those who are not like us, for they need the healing power of Christ, which is great even within us. I remember some time ago, I was attending a Bible study at a, church, a friend's church. My friend was a peaceable chap, but rather more theologically liberal than myself. Still, I enjoyed his company, and he was good for an interesting conversation. I found myself talking to a woman that evening that I had never seen around, and we were discussing the Nicene Creed, and out of the blue she said something shocking. Well, I mean, no one actually believes this stuff. It's just something nice to say. I was rather shocked. I was young, and this was really the first time I had experienced someone flat out deny the creeds of the church. Since then, I've heard numerous stories and had other experiences. Perhaps the most shocking of these stories is when a progressive minister retools the story which we read this morning to be about an unexpected teenage pregnancy. That somehow Mary was fooling around with someone and became pregnant and then cooked up the story of the virgin birth. My friends, this is not what is going on here. The text does not support it, which we will delve into in just a moment. But for now, all you need to know this type of skeptical approach to the text is not even remotely accurate or true of what is being said. But I want to make a very brief side note. While we believe and affirm to the traditional Christian sexual ethic, as being both thoroughly biblical and something which we are called to live in, we do know that this mold gets broken from time to time. We know that it isn't always the case. We know that people make mistakes, get tripped up, stumble, fall, and sin. We know it too well because we have sinned. Because of the inordinate grace which we have experienced for our own sins, we therefore are called to love those people who have struggled whether their sins are like ours or different. We are called to love the single mothers, to be open and kind to them. We are called to show Christ's love in this dark and dying world. We love them and we affirm all life and we desire that God would be glorified in all things. But now back to Mary and back to the, skept back to the skeptics some have argued that the word which is used here has when has traditionally been translated virgin could mean, simply mean a young woman. They aren't completely wrong in this. In fact, it does sometimes mean a young woman of marriageable age. However, it does not simply mean that she is of the age to get married. It has specifically to do with the chastity of this young woman. In reality, it means it means a woman of marriageable age who has never known a man. And as we read the whole narrative, we can take the word to mean nothing else 
than a virgin. So it is that the text is really talking about a young woman who is legally been promised in marriage to a man of the house of David named Joseph. Now, if you pay attention, you'll notice other objections to the virgin birth. Another very common one, which occasionally arises, is that this story was simply stolen from pagan stories. That somehow Christ's miraculous divine birth comes from these stories of when the pagan gods would come down and reproduce with human women. The most striking difference between these stories is the gospel message, between the gospel message and that of pagan lore, is that the pagan stories were never viewed as having morality within them. And yet Mary is always viewed as chaste. The most interesting example of one of these stories, which I found earlier while preparing my sermon and then did not save it, unfortunately, was of one of, a, one of the gods destroying her husband, literally tearing him to pieces, and then recreating a son for herself out of his parts. I thought it was one of the Egyptian gods, but frustratingly, it is now gone from my memory. Although the myth is, more, is a more extreme example of the pagan god stories, when examined critically, there ends up being almost no comparison between the narrative of the birth of Christ and the pagan tales. But here is the important question. Does it really matter? Is the virgin birth a big deal as we claim it that it is? Or as some have claimed, some superstitious thing that Christians make a big to-do about? Let me give you a spoiler before I delve further into this. Yes, it matters tremendously. One of the interesting things about the Generation Z presentation was that where modernists might be skeptical about things such as the virgin birth or the resurrection, it would seem that young people have, are less skeptical, but they're more concerned with why it might matter. And so while it is important for our own souls to understand and accept this, it is equally important for the sake of our witness to see why it is so critical to our faith. First, the virgin conception of Jesus reveals the incredible uniqueness of Christ. Never before nor since has a man walked this earth who was conceived of a virgin. Right away, we see that this is a truly unique position for this man to be in. We all know how children come into existence, and so we know how scandalous this is. Secondly, this conception created a special relationship between God the Father and Christ his Son. In fact, in our reading this morning, you see the entire Trinity already starting to act out its role in the salvific plan for humanity. An angel was sent from God, the Father, to announce the birth of Jesus, the Son, which would be made possible by the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity worked in perfect cooperation for Christ to be born, to, his life, to live his life without fault in the world, to die willfully on the cross for sinners such as you and I, that we might have eternal life and to be raised to new life, that we too could be raised with him on the last day. Third, along the same lines, the virgin birth tells us the 
work, that our salvation is a work of God. I have been contemplating this incredible grace as of late. I don't believe that I can emphasize enough. We do not save ourselves. We are not cooperators, but are submitting subjects to our King and Lord in the act of our salvation and the process of our sanctification. God begins and ends the work in us. In the same way, the virgin birth was a complete work of God. Many, Mary only submitted to his will for her. While some of our beloved friends in other churches believe Mary was somehow sinless as well, this simply cannot be supported by scripture. But rather, the virgin birth points to the amazing fact that God and God alone did this work. God started the work of our salvation, and God has completed the work of our salvation. Fourth and likewise, the virgin conception is a sign of God's final salvation, final salvation has come. There have been types and foreshadowings of this coming in the Old Testament. We saw some of them as we did our survey over the last year. But the real and fullest miraculous birth has now happened. Finally, the Christ, the one who would crush the serpent's head, the son of Eve has come to set his captive people free. In fact, we could argue that the birth of John was the final miraculous foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. For like others before him, John was born of a mother who was far too old to conceive and yet conceived by the grace of God. It was after the conception of John the Baptist that Mary got her first vision from Gabriel, and finally all that was promised was beginning to be fulfilled. The final reason the virgin conception is of such importance is it testifies to the incarnation. This amazing fact that God was made man, that God truly condescended to us and lived a perfect, fully human life. That means that from the commencement of his gestation until the death, his death and resurrection, he was fully, perfectly human and yet fully God. I realize that this last sentence perhaps sounded a bit on the technical side, but it gives me chills for two reasons. For those of you who don't know, I spent several years working for a biotech which worked with animals. I specifically worked in their reproductive sciences department. I watched mice embryos develop from semination through various cellular stages. There is something amazing to think that God came and was briefly a single-celled embryo, and then a two-celled, and then a four-celled, developing as you and I developed in the womb, growing and maturing until his birth. This fact baffles me. The vulnerability, the love that this act must have taken is staggering and beautiful. Secondly, we live in a time where those early cells of humanity are not considered human, but considered simply that, just cells, that can be tossed away as easily as the next thing. And yet the God incarnate lived each and every gestational stage 
Every moment that you and I have lived in our mother's wombs, surely this must foster an awe in us for the preciousness of life. If it weren't for enough that each human being was created in the image of God, the fact that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, went through each scientific stage of development should drive us to wonder and respect for the sanctity of human life. And now I want to read to you a section from Knowing God, which we've been reading in Christian Education. Because J.I. Packer summarizes the astounding fact of the incarnation exceedingly eloquently. The real staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here in this thing that happened on that first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depth of Christian revelation lies. The word became flesh. God made man, the divine son became a Jew, the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. No other point of theology within the Christian tradition is as important and and is as critical, is as amazing as the incarnation. Packer's words point us to this. Remind us, enliven us, encourage us, and help us to remember that very fact. That we, what we read about was announced this morning to a young, scared girl in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. Was earth-shattering and altered the direction of humanity forever. And why does the incarnation matter? Like all points of theology, it is easy to become overly heady or, God forbid, become puffed up in our knowledge, becoming conceited that we know something others don't. But first and foremost, the incarnation should make us profoundly humble. For like the reality of the virgin birth, it points to the fact that God saves, that salvation is not a work of man, It is God who condescended to us and lived among us. He ends the work in us. It is not us, but him and him alone. Secondly, the incarnation is is a fact spelled out and testified to in scripture. I think we've talked about C.S. Lewis's proof of Christ, where he argues Christ is either Lord lunatic or liar. If we read the gospel accounts attentively, we realize that Jesus believed that he was special, believed that he was in fact Lord and God. 
If you were to walk down the street and met someone, and they believed that they were the Lord of the universe, you would either be forced to come to one of these three conclusions. This man is crazy. This man is not telling us the truth. Or this man is telling you the truth, and you are in the presence of someone great. The evidence with Christ does not paint the picture that he is crazy, nor that he is deceptive. Therefore, Jesus must be Lord. Jesus must be King of Kings. The incarnation most makes this all the more believable, but it also testifies of the incarnation. Third, the fact that Jesus is God incarnate tells us that God, it was God on the cross dying for our sins. The more I've contemplated the incarnation these past few days while getting ready for this sermon, the more in awe of this incredible fact I become. And I know I've said this at least twice already in this sermon, but I am simply amazed by the act of salvation, amazed how through God, thoroughly God-centered our salvation is. It is not you nor I that made it possible but from the very beginning, it was God and it is God. It is God who held himself to the cross and it was, it was not just a good human man or some excellent teacher like Socrates dying. It was the incarnate Lord who suffered there for all to see and for all who would believe. Fourth, the resurrection tends to be another one of those modernist hangups. But if Christ truly was incarnate, then of course he could be raised from the dead. Rather, the resurrection tends to be another hang-up. Sorry. And if he's incarnate, he could be raised from the dead. And of course he would be raised from the dead. Because how could it be that the author of life could possibly be contained by the grave? The incarnation testified to the reality of the resurrection, as the resurrection testifies to the reality of the incarnation. The second half of this morning's lesson ends with incredible joy and praise. Elizabeth, Mary's older relative, now heavy with child, greets Mary with joy, and the baby in her womb jumps with gladness, as even he realizes he is in the presence of something amazing. Somehow, Elizabeth and her unborn child already know Jesus is Lord. And this brings us to one final theological point. Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of, our Lord, of her Lord. There was a Christological controversy in the 5th century when a theologian objected to the term Theotokos, that is, the God-bearer for Mary, because he was afraid that elevated Mary to a position another human shouldn't hold. Yet this is what Mary is. She is truly bearing in her womb the incarnate God. Even in this morning's reading, we see that Elizabeth recognizes this. It is important to recognize that Christ is God, and there was never a point where Jesus was not God. And with that in mind, Mary can be nothing less than the Theotokos, that is, the God-bearer. We close this lesson with the hymn, which we call the Magnificat. Those who do evening prayer at home or join us for evensong during the week 
are familiar with this song of praise. Mary is moved to awe by all that she is seeing and learning and experiencing of the little child that is growing in her. Well, the song, Mary, Did You Know, sometimes seems a little bit pedantic. We want to say, of course she knew. The angel told her. But I suspect this is uncharitable to the, char- to the songwriter. It seems likely that in one sense, of course she knew. But in another very real sense, it was only slowly sinking in slowly realizing that something amazing, something so much bigger than her was happening in her womb. How could she possibly know? And imagine that she would be the one to tend to and care for the incarnate Lord, who was a vulnerable baby in her womb, who was wrapped in swaddling cloths, who cried when he was hungry, who needed love and nurturing as we did when we were children. How could she possibly realize that in its fullness? I realized this morning we delved into some pretty deep and profoundly important theology. I hope and pray that it was presented in such a way that it enlivens your heart and brought you to a place of incredible awe and at the grace of our Lord, at the tender care he gives his children, at the love that he has poured out for us. I hope that you have been reminded of the incredible truth of the incarnation, that your hearts have been brought to a place of praise, and that the same Lord who came, who truly lived, who died, who truly rose again, and who will return on the last day, was conceived of the Virgin Mary, and in her womb grew as every child has ever grown, and yet he was truly man and fully God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.